0: Welcome to 7 Minute Torah. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. In this podcast, we explore the weekly Torah portion in about 7 to 10 minutes. We make modern meaning out of ancient texts, exploring them through liberal Jewish eyes. To become a supporter of this podcast, please visit patreon.com slash 7 Minute Torah. Alright, welcome everyone. I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. This week we're talking about Chaye Sarah. Chayei Sarah starts at the beginning of chapter 23 of Genesis and goes through chapter 25, verse 18. And it deals with matters of life and death. The name of the Parsha literally means the life of Sarah, Chaye Sarah. But it opens actually with the announcement of the death of Sarah. Remember that Torah portions receive their Hebrew name from the first important word in the parsha. So the reason it's called Chaye Sarah is that it starts with these words: Bayeihu Chaye Sarah, Mayachana vesrimchanave sheva shanim. Sarah's life came to 127 years. In other words, the opening of the parsha called Sarah's life actually tells us how long her life was and what happened in the immediate aftermath. Right after Sarah dies, Abraham goes about trying to find a burial place for her. It involves a whole negotiation with the local people, the Hittites of the area where he's living, and he ends up buying a burial plot, a cave called Machpelah, where he buries Sarah. The end of this parsha announces that Abraham too dies and that he as well is buried in that cave of Machpelah. The cave of Machpelah is located in the city of Hebron, and it is still to this day a holy spot for Jews and Muslims, and of course a place of great contention there in that West Bank city. So the parsha begins and ends with death, but in the middle it focuses more on life. After Sarah dies, Abraham seems to realize that he needs to do something about the next generation, so he sends his servant off to find a wife for Isaac. The servant goes back to the land of Padan Aram, which is where Abraham and Sarah came from, goes back to their family, and comes back with a cousin, Rebekah. In those days, everybody married their cousins. Truly, up until pretty recently, most people married their cousins. Let's not talk about it. But at any rate, Isaac's new wife is to be his cousin, Rebecca. She returns from the land of Paddan Aram, meets her future husband, is so smitten she falls off her camel, then she covers herself with a veil, and the rest is kind of history. The Torah says that Isaac brought Rebekah into the tent of his mother, Sarah, and found comfort in her death. In other words, life goes on, even after the death of his loved one. So this parasha is very much about life and death and legacy, but it's about something else also. It's about the way that we relate as a people to the land of Israel and to the other people living in the land of Israel. That opening story that I described of Abraham trying to find a burial place for Sarah. He can't just call the local real estate agent or the nearby Jewish cemetery and buy a plot. Abraham has to purchase a plot of land from a people who are not his own. The Torah calls them Hittites, another people alongside whom Abraham has been living. And the Torah describes the essentially respectful way that these two groups treat each other. Abraham goes before the Hittites and says, "Gervatoshav Anohi imachem, I am a stranger among you. Sell me a burial plot that I may remove my dead for burial and the Hittites reply to him with great respect as well. They say, enu Adoni, nasi Elohim Ata, hear us, my Lord. you are the elect of God among us." They offer him the choicest of burial plots. He declines and says that it's important to him to buy a spot. The wealthy owner of the cave, whose name is Ephron, comes up, and they go through a bit of negotiation. And in the end, Abraham pays top dollar for this spot. And that's important because this is the first time that Abraham and his family have owned land, even a tiny plot of land in the land of Israel. The commentary of Rabbi Gunther Plout points out that there is a profound anxiety behind Abraham's measured phrases. Quote After all, he has no assurance that the Hittites will agree to his request. He might have to bury his wife somewhere by the roadside in unclaimed land, just as Jacob was later forced to do with Rachel. At this moment, Abraham seeks desperately for something physical, some place, even a gravesite, to call his own. So Rabbi Plout points out here that there is a sense of transience, that part of what Abraham is seeking here, some of it's about burying his wife, some of it's about permanence, it's about having a place to call home. And in that sense, Abraham and the Hittites, Abraham and this local tribe, model something that has been much more elusive for more recent residents of the same land, and that is recognizing one another's claim recognizing that the other also considers this place a home. So in the end, the story is not only about Abraham burying his wife, it's also about Abraham coming to find a home, a resting place in the land, and he and the Hittites welcoming each other to their shared land. This line of thinking might help us to explain the very strange note that this parsha ends on. Genesis chapter 25 says that after the death of Sarah, Abraham took another wife and her name was Keturah. And then it just lists a bunch of names of their children. Zimran, Yokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak Shua. And then it lists their children. Sheva, Dedan, Ashurim, Lemuim, Ephah, Efer, Enoch, Abida Eldah. Everybody got all that? That's what chapter 25 sounds like. It's just this listing of name after name after name. Who are these people? The Torah never says who Keturah is, the third wife of Abraham. The rabbis, by the way, in the commentaries say that maybe it's Hagar and Abraham remarried her. The Torah gives no indication of that, of course. She seems to be a totally separate wife, And yet it gives us a listing of all these names of their children. And the reason for that, if we look closely, seems to be not only about Abraham and his children, but also about the identities of those children in the real world. The Eitz Chaim commentary points out that these children that are listed are essentially groupings of nomadic tribes or peoples. These are all different groups that lived in the area. In other words, the Torah is sending a message that all these people that live around us, the ones that live in the Arabian Peninsula, the ones that live in the desert, the ones that are nomadic across the area, they're all children of Abraham, brothers or cousins of Israel. And I think that's a very important message that the Torah is sending. It chooses to see the surrounding nations as members of a larger Abrahamic family. And I mean, we all know how things are with family, right? Sometimes you get along and sometimes you don't get along. But in the end, family are someone to whom you have a responsibility. To suggest that these people are family is a different message, of course, than to say that they are random strangers or enemies that happen to live nearby. If you believe that the people on the other side of the border are your family, you will potentially act differently. And that applies to all these ancient random tribes that lived in the area that don't exist anymore. And it applies in our world as well. The Torah sees, and Jewish tradition sees, Jews and Muslims, Jews and Arabs, as also being members of a single family. As we know, because we've seen the stories over the last couple of weeks, Isaac and Ishmael become the progenitors of the Israelite people and the Ishmaelite people, which is to say the Jews and the Arabs. And that's present in Torah, and it's present in Jewish tradition as well. In fact, the Torah seems to understand that there is an ongoing conflict between these two people. The Torah gives us a story of Isaac and Ishmael being estranged from one another because of various things that have happened within their family. However, when this parsha ends, it brings them back together. This is the middle of chapter 25, it's verse 6. It says, avraham. This was the total span of Abraham's life, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last, dying at a good ripe age, old and contented. His sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, So when Abraham dies, he is buried in the cave beside his beloved wife, Sarah. And who does the burying but his estranged sons, Isaac and Ishmael. They come back together one more time to bury their father. Do they also make up? Do they also let bygones be bygones? Do they end their estrangement? It doesn't say any of that, but it does say that they come together to bury their father. And I think here again, one more time, the Torah wishes to remind us that when it's talking about people, it's also talking about nations. That the nations, the people among whom we live, are our family. And that everything we do should be with the recognition that we are family. When we're building the Jewish state, we have to recognize that the people living next door and the people living amongst us are family and have a place in this land. That when we're administering war, we have to realize that the people on the other side of that border are family. And we would ask the same of everyone involved in this conflict, because of course the Muslim tradition also teaches that Isaac and Ishmael are brothers. So the Parsha begins with the story of Abraham learning to share the space with the nearby tribe. And it ends with a reminder of the brotherhood, the familyhood of Isaac and Ishmael. And in fact, it revolves around the purchase of a place that becomes not only a burial space for Abraham and Sarah, not only an Ahuzad Bayit, a place of inheritance and homecoming that makes this land home, but also a holy space For all of their descendants. And the irony of the cave of Machpelah is, of course, that it is such a flashpoint, that it is such a place of contention, whereas the Torah seems to intend it as a place where we can come together. So I long for the day when Isaac and Ishmael can once again come together, whether it be at the cave of Machpelah or anywhere in the land that some of us call Israel and some of us call Palestine. And I long for that moment of coming together to be different from the one that's described in the Torah. Not a funeral, not a sad moment of burial, but rather a moment of connection, a moment of celebration, a moment of recognizing and remembering that we are family. And that's a hard vision to hold during this very challenging, this tragic moment in the history of Jewish-Arab relations. But I believe it is the vision that our Torah invites us to hold. Along those lines, let me remind you that this Thursday, November 9th, at noon Eastern time, is the first session of our new initiative called Tikva Through Text. It's finding hope through study. We're going to be led each week in a 30-minute study about something relating to hope. Hope means Tikvah in Hebrew will be led by a different rabbi every week. It's an opportunity to connect, an opportunity to find a little bit of light in the darkness. I hope you can join us. Go to laasok.org, l-a-a-s-o-k.org, and click on Tikva through text. Thanks for listening, and I will see you back next week. 7 Minute Torah is a production of La Asok, Sacred Texts, Modern Meaning. If you enjoyed this program, Please consider becoming a sponsor at patreon.com slash 7-Minute Torah. For more information about upcoming learning opportunities, go to laasoka.org, L-A-A-S-O-K dot I'm Rabbi Micah Streifer. Thanks for listening.